can't always get what you want. You can't always get what you want. But if you try sometimes, well, you might find. Good morning and welcome to Visionaries. I'm John LaBelle, your host. You'll find us here on the Progressive Radio Network online at prn.fm, Mondays at 10 a.m. or, well, it's 10 a.m. East Coast, New York time. Wherever you are in the world, you got to figure it out. On Visionaries, we talk about creativity in the arts, sciences, technology, culture, and spirituality, and about how we can enrich the world and ourselves by tapping into the energies of the cosmos. And you can catch our back shows online at visionaries.podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N as in Nancy, dot com. So uh, a couple of shows back, I was talking about education. And I want to I want to continue that discussion. I started with a little conceit. Uh, I'm an older person, and I'm a professor, professor of architecture at Pratt Institute in Brooklyn. And so, if you're a younger person, you might ask yourself: If you're somebody my age, my age, what if? Uh, uh, your child or grandchild or niece or nephew were to ask you, okay, I'm 18 years old. I have four years and $100,000. Could be more than that, but let's just use that round number. What should I do? And, of course, the point of the question is, should I go to college? Now, i got to add a little something to my conceit here, and that's the following. When I got out of college, the New York Times had two help-wanted sections, help-wanted male and help-wanted female. Uh, I had just graduated architecture school, so the architecture ads were, of course, in the help-wanted male. Help-wanted females was secretaries and nurses, I guess. I didn't read those. And that is now illegal. And we all agree with that. Um, the... There really are, don't have to be any gender differentiations in professions. And in fact, uh, my architecture school finally caught up with others and were well over 50% female students. So maybe engineering, women are still in a minority, but colleges are now 60% women. And graduate schools are quickly catching. I don't know what's going to happen to men. But anyway, uh, that's what's going on. So we don't have that differentiation anymore. So my little fantasy is, my little conceit is, suppose it were also illegal for a help-wanted ad to specify that you should have a college degree or for an interviewer to ask if you have a college degree. Now, there could be exceptions if the prospective employer could demonstrate that a college degree was relevant to the, to the job. But as an alternative, there would be certifications. And by that I mean, uh, suppose you had to be able to 
be proficient in Microsoft Office. Or you, they wanted you to be familiar with modern philosophy or calculus or advanced algebra or uh, programming in C++, whatever, that you would get certified in that. And there would be various ways you'd get certified. You could go to adult ed courses or seminars or uh, study online and take exams. And, you know, the people giving the exams might be accredited. You know, you'd, you'd want some type of, uh, what's the term, quality control. But overall, that would be the idea. And interestingly, um, well, we'll get to that in a minute, but that would be the idea. So if that were the case, that employers would be looking for particular skills, abilities, and obviously also attitudes, personality types. If you want someone in sales, you want someone dealing with people, you want some leading a team, a software development team, a, an architectural project team, they have to have leadership capabilities and certain type of personalities. So you look for all that in the interview, but you wouldn't be asking for a college degree, which doesn't guarantee anything anyway. So in that world, what would you suggest to our 18-year-old who has four years and $100,000? What? My, <laughs> put the $100,000 in U.S. Treasuries and have a million dollars when you retire, if they ever get back to normal, to normal interest rates. And for the four years, I don't know, apprentice, travel, see the world, um, work in various jobs, uh, whatever, you know, but sitting on a college campus going to beer parties and sitting in uh, English 101 class, if they actually taught good writing skills, great, but maybe there are other ways to acquire those. I, I've taught some MOOCs. <laughs> Massive, open, online courses. If you go to buildacademy.com, buildacademy.com, you'll find my course on Frank Lloyd Wright. Now, these courses on MOOCs have um, discussion groups and projects and stuff like that. That's not there because I gave the course a while back. But the lectures are there. And very interesting. The lectures are supposed to be limited to seven minutes. Most of mine go about 10. And there's a lot of them. There's maybe 40 of them. And what the idea is, each presentation, and I, I, mine are a discussion. In other words, I'm, I'm doing it with uh, the founder of uh, buildacademy.com. So it makes it very interesting. I talk for a bit, and then we go back and forth. But this idea of seven, or in my case, 10 minutes, the point is there should be one or at most three clear ideas clearly communicated. And then there are uh, online questions at the end to see to it that you clearly understood those ideas. If not, go back and listen again for 10 more minutes. And this obviously makes sense in math that if they're 
whatever, five steps, and you miss step two, <laughs> you're not going to get anywhere with step three, four, and five. So go back and repeat two until you get it. And if it's not coming through, go to a different uh, presentation. If you're on, I don't know, iTunes University and it's not working, go to Khan Academy and do the five steps of whatever it is in math that you're trying to master. So we have all these alternatives and uh, as ways of acquiring these needed skills. In a lot of ways, obviously, you know, to be in a class with a brilliant professor, a small class with brilliant students, with discussion groups, uh, can't be beat. But, you know, maybe we can come close in online and I teach uh, with a team the uh, two-year required sequence, four semesters, on the history of architecture, history and theory of art and architecture from beginning to today. And the lectures are two hours. Who can stay focused for two hours? <laughs> Students are supposed to be taking notes. Guess what? <laughs> so we have a team of uh, five people, and one of us is giving the lecture. And, you know, if you're not give, if I'm, if I'm not giving the lecture, I can walk around and see what the students are looking at on their iPhones, <laughs> on, their, on their smartphones, on their laptops, on their pads. And some of them are actually have the slides of the lecture up on their laptop because we post them online in advance. And they've, you know, they'll be taking notes and they're looking online. But most of them are doing email or shopping or texting their friends. You know, how is that superior to 10 minutes of focused material that we, you know, which has one clear idea that you need to master? So anyway, there are a lot of ways to get an education. And the idea that college is the only one, hopefully we'll start to get over that. You know, the, the college is probably going to be the next big bubble, like the housing bubble, that uh, everybody was told you needed a house. House was going to rise in value. It was how to have an investment, and a lot of people got badly hurt. And now there's more college debt then there is credit card debt over a trillion dollars out there. And is it all worthwhile? So anyway, that's my question. And this leads to a broader discussion of, well, is college the best way? Are there alternatives? And it depends upon what we're trying to do with that quote-unquote education. So there was an article a while back. I quoted from it on our last show, but it's worth doing again. This is from the New York Times, January 30th, 2016. How to Raise a Creative Child. Step one, back off by Adam Grant. <laughs> it begins, they learn to read by age two, play Bach at four, breeze through calculus at six, and speak foreign languages fluently by eight. Their classmates shudder with envy. Their parents rejoice at winning the lottery. But to paraphrase T.S. Eliot, their careers tend to end not with a bang but a whimper. 
Now, what is he talking about here? Well, he goes on, Consider the nation's most prestigious award for scientifically gifted high school students, the Westinghouse Science Talent Search. I think that's now the Intel Science uh, Talent Search, called the Super Bowl of Science by One American President. From its inception in 1942 until 1994, the search recognized more than 2,000 precocious, precocious teenagers as finalists, but just 1% ended up making the National Academy of Sciences, and just eight have won Nobel Prizes. For every Lisa Randell who revolutionized theoretical physics, there are many dozens who fall short of their potential. Child prodigies rarely become adult geniuses who change the world. So, why is that? And the article goes on to talk about why and what it has to do with are we educating for innovative creativity or are we educating for, dare I say it, conformity? So let's say the, uh, the magic track. The magic track is uh, you zip through high school go to a prestigious college, and then get a job at a top law firm or consulting firm, you know, McKinsey. Uh, now, let's back up. You don't zip through college. You have to take a summer to go to Peru and do a, dig a well for a, and set up a water system for a village. And then you, um, you know, have to play at least three or four sports, volunteer for this and that. And that gets you into the prestigious college where you uh, major in pre-law, business, whatever, go to business school or law school. It's got to be a top one. We now found out that, oh, you go to law school and you, uh, uh, you know, beginning salary, (laughs) $200,000. That's a lot more than I make. And turns out that's only if you go to one of the top five law schools. You go to the second tier of top of five, five law schools, you make a lot less. And you go to beyond the top 20 law schools, you might even not find a job. And there are people now suing law schools for false advertising for promoting these $200,000 starting salaries when no, none of the graduates of their law school made that kind of money. So um, it's got to be one of the top five or top three or four. How do you do that? Well, you don't do it by telling your professors they're full of baloney. You don't do it by challenging the accepted wisdom. You don't do it by original thinking. <laughs> I'll tell you a little story. I was in sophomore English. And so, you know, of course, the teacher's a graduate student. It's not one of the, you know, brilliant English professors in the, in the school. They're too busy doing research. They don't teach sophomore English. But uh, so the instructor... The, opens the course first day, 
tells a little story about an American, a real Babbitt, right? Midwesterner is um, touring Paris and goes to the Louvre, passes the guard on the way in, and 20 minutes later comes out. And so surprised that the visit has been so short, security guard says to the visitor, well, what'd you think of the art? And the American, you know, typical uh, ugly American says, uh, you know, some of it's not so bad. And the security guard says, my dear sir, it's not you. It's not the art that is uh, to be judged. It's you who are on trial being judged by the art, right? So <laughs> I raise my hand and I say, what's wrong with, you know, having your own judgment? looking at the art and seeing what you think of it. And uh, so the instructor says, well, Mr. Lobel, maybe, uh, maybe you're an exceptional person. <laughs> Last day of class, <laughs> I was a troublemaker the whole semester. Uh, the professor says, uh, uh, well, Mr. Lobel, I think you are your own person. <laughs> And I'm thinking, what, what, what is she talking about? Oh, my God, she's referring to that little story on the first day. Well, we don't encourage our students to be like that. I um, just to pick on some of my young uh, faculty colleagues, uh, you know, they, uh, you know they, 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 they're not encouraging their students to question. Some of my young colleagues might be a bit insecure. And if the student says, what is this all about? You know, the, the professor's going to make sure that student doesn't, uh, doesn't say that again. Uh, they're going to protect themselves. And so, you know, we wonder uh, about this. So that's one of the things going on. They were training people to not think for themselves, to conform and if you do think for yourselves, if you say this doesn't make any sense, if you say, uh, you know, I don't accept this, you're not going to get into the prestigious college, into the prestigious law or business school, into the prestigious law or consulting firm. So that's our first problem. And then the next one is that we've created today a can't-do culture. So I've uh, recently discovered Peter Thiel. So I always knew who Peter Thiel was, uh, having seen the movie The Social Network. <clears throat> Peter Thiel's part of what they call the PayPal Mafia. So he's one of the co-founders of PayPal, and they sold it for, what, a billion and a half dollars to, uh, to eBay, I guess. And so he pocketed a few hundred million dollars and became a uh, Silicon Valley uh, venture capitalist. And he's also found and co-founded another company. And he has become quite articulate about the economy and about education. I mean, very insightful. And we tend to reduce people like that to sound bites. Oh, he's the one that pays students $100,000 to drop out of college. 
Well, yes, he has a foundation, and that's sort of what it does. But it's a very considered operation that's very developed, and you can look it up and see what it does. And also, in today's world of YouTube, um, you can find his lectures. And I have a hard time reading. Uh, So I listen to books. And his book is uh, uh, Zero to One. Very interesting notion. And that is that, okay, you have a company that's underway. How do you go from a million in sales to 100 million in sales? Uh, you know, that's, that's uh, you can bring in a crew of high-end uh, uh, business school graduates that might be able to engineer that. But how do you go from zero to one? How do you go from an idea to your first million in sales? And that's what his book's about. But it's not uh, a handbook for Silicon Valley startups. Well, it is. But it's much more than that because it's about any idea. You have an idea. You want to write a paper. You want to write a book. You want to write a novel. Uh, You want to compose a piece of music. You're at zero. You have to get to one. Once you get to one, you can start cleaning it up, finishing it, refining it. I uh, I write books. And my latest book, if you want to look it up on Amazon, is Visionary Creativity. I might talk about it a bit today. But, uh, you know, it's a struggle to just scroll down something. So I'll write something. And then, you know, type it into the computer. And then I can print it out. Uh, sit, I happen to sit in bed, uh, sit in, put it in a three ring binder, uh, and start working it over with a pencil and then, you know, incorporate those changes. So that I love doing that. I love refining that idea. Wasn't clear. This can be stated better. This is repetitive. Cross out this part here. I already said that this can be tightened up. This needs to be further developed. I, I love doing that. But the hard part is the first draft. Well, that's what Peter Thiel's book is about, the first draft of any idea, any company. And he has a lot to say about it. But the most interesting thing he has to say about it is if your idea is what everybody everybody agrees with, it's probably not a good idea. Uh, I mean, it may be true, but it's a pretty uh, dumb idea to start a company that's something that everybody else is doing. You want a company that nobody else is doing. And he talks interestingly about the idea of monopoly, that uh, the companies like Microsoft, Apple, Google, they don't have any competition. Eh, You know, maybe Apple does now a bit with Samsung or whatever, but uh, basically they have to dominate something. And uh, if you do something that has competition, you know, if you start a pizza parlor in in Silicon Valley, he talks about restaurants in, uh, you know, in Palo Alto or whatever, um, that's really difficult. And you're you know, if it's a pizza poly, your prices are going to be driven down to the minimum. You can't charge twice as much as the the place across the street. Um, there's all this competition, and it's very difficult. But so if your idea 
when he's interviewing somebody, to be an engineer at uh, PayPal when he was starting PayPal, he'd say, what do you believe? What do you believe that nobody else believes? And people will say, you know, that the education system is broken. I said, well, you know, everybody knows that. That's not an original idea. Uh, is there anything you believe that's an original idea? Now, if you believe something nobody else believes, maybe you want to keep your mouth shut. Uh, that's a problem. You might believe something about climate change. You might believe something about uh, politics that isn't, you know, the thing in your community. Uh, so do you want to let anybody know? Well, that's, uh, that's difficult. And so if you're going to write a book, is it going to be a rehash of what everybody else is saying? In which case, you know, uh, people might look at your book favorably because it's what they think. Uh, or is it going to be the opposite of what everybody else thinks and everybody else is saying? In which case, they'll ignore your book. They won't review it. They'll pan it. They'll uh, disagree with it. They'll treat it hostily. Are you willing to, are you willing to do that? And think of the books that change things. Rachel Car, Rachel Carson, Silent Spring, about pesticides. Nobody else was saying that. You know, there was no Ralph Nader. Ralph Nader came after her. Um, so she said something, and nobody else was saying, and it it changed the world. Uh, but it might not have. There are books that I've, I've been into that nobody else has been into. Uh, going to those maybe in another show. But anyway, um, so that's one thing Peter Till talks about, that having original ideas. And maybe we should have an education that encourages that. And the other thing is that we're now in a can't-do world, cannot do. And... Uh, to repeat some of his uh, thoughts, he describes, says, in the 1930s, it took nine months to build the Empire State Building in New York, which for many years was the world's tallest building. Nine months! The New World Trade Center it took 12 years! <laughs> what? what uh, uh, you know... And then he described in the 1930s, it took three and a half years to build the Golden Gate Bridge in California. Today, they're adding an entrance ramp. It's now going on 10 years, and it's costing in inflation-corrected dollars as much as it cost to build the original Golden Gate Bridge. Uh, in 1962, President John F. Kennedy announced that we would go to the moon. Seven years later, the first person stepped on the moon. But the last moonwalk was 45 years ago. I mean, my, this, is, this is 25 years before my students were, a quarter of a century before my students were born. You know, I remember sitting in front of the TV watching the moon landing, watching the first walk on the moon. I still have my slides from the TV set, right? <laughs> they didn't have home VCRs then. Uh, hello. Uh, and, you know, I would then say to my students, um, well, my stu I, I started teaching about a year later, <laughs> and we were still land regularly landing on the moon. I'd say to my students, 
Now, your students will be doing gravity-free experiments in orbit during uh, spring break. Well, they're not. And it's been 45 years since anyone's walked on the moon. And so, you know, my students moonwalked. This is a quarter of a century before they were born. It's almost half a century ago. Uh, what are we doing? So maybe we could use some more can-do attitude. Now, just to be a little bit controversial, uh, isn't that what we're supposed to do, right? Peter Thiel tells us in zero to one. What what do you believe that um, nobody else believes? And, you know, or are you a, I'll use that dirty word, <laughs> are you a conformist? <laughs> March in lockstep with everybody else. Boy, I read a, I read an online newsletter called Inside Higher Education. So it comes on every morning. Oh, I've got to look at it this morning. Comes on every morning, and there's about five stories, and there's uh, one sentence for each one. <clears throat> and then you click on uh, you click on to get the full story if it's something you're interested in, and you can comment. Well, <laughs> I've been I've been barred. <laughs> My comments don't get past the censor. Uh, I've been emailing them, and now I'm telephoning them, you know, like, what's going on here? <laughs> and uh, haven't been able to get through to them. But, and, of course, you don't want to say, you know, people, you don't want to say, uh, George Bush is an idiot. Uh, that, you know, so they need a censor so that people don't flame and insult each other and um, go off topic and et cetera. But somehow the censors aren't letting my very well-considered, polite comments. I disagree with a lot of the premises, but I never attack anybody personally. But you're no longer supposed to do that. You know, that there are certain received wisdoms that we're not allowed to question. Where's that at? <laughs> that, isn't, that isn't how I, I grew up. That wasn't the way it was when I was, uh, whenever. Well, like it was, but I wasn't that way. <laughs> uh, I was, I was, I remember um, in the lecture series in architecture school, uh, one, of, one of the students says to me, you know, after the lecture, he says, we all turn around and say, what's Lobel going to ask? Oh. <laughs> uh, uh, and um, uh, I remember in physics, in my physics course, the lecture, you know, we had a section and we had a lab, but in the lectures were prominent physicists, you know, and they would each, depending upon their specialty, and we got to relativity, we had a major relativity physicist uh, doing a couple of the lectures. And he did the famous Einstein uh, uh demonstration that there's no difference between gravity and acceleration. And what special relativity says is gravity is not a force, but rather gravity, mass distorts space-time around it and curves space. So the famous example is you have a bowling ball and a, tr a rubber trampoline. You put the bowling ball on there, 
and it makes an indentation in the in the rubber membrane. So if you put a ball bearing in there or a marble in there, it'll and swir- you know, give it a little push. It'll go around in a circle, but it'll spiral in to the bowling ball, not because the bowling ball is pulling on it with a force, but because the bowling ball has distorted the uh, rubber membrane so that the natural path of the marble is to travel on a curve in toward the bowling ball. So Einstein shows how the Earth distorts the space-time continuum and <clears throat> pulls, um, and that's what we see as gravity. So as opposed to Newton's notion that it's a force. And then Einstein then says, if a physicist were in a room, a little an elevator, uh, and it's sitting on the ground, and he, he drops a rock, and boing, it falls, accelerates at 32 feet per second squared. And now you take that little elevator out into space with the physicist in it, and you attach a cable way far away from any gravitational force, and you catch a, uh, attach a cable to it and pull it, accelerating it 32 feet per second squared. So at first the physicist is floating, right? But now, because you're pulling it, the, the floor of the elevator is pressing up against him. So he thinks, you know, I'm, I'm getting gravity here. And then he drops his rock, and it doesn't move because there's no gravity. But the floor is moving up at 32 feet per second squared. So the physicist, aha, the, uh, the rock moved down. Physicist doesn't move down because his feet are wedged against the floor. But the rock stays still, but the floor comes up, and it looks like the rock fell. And then Einstein says there is no experiment the physicist can do to distinguish whether he's in the elevator in space being pulled at 32 feet per second square, which is acceleration, or is sitting on the earth, standing still, and gravity is pulling the, what we used to call gravity, is pulling the rock down at 32 feet per second squared. Uh, It's the same thing. You can't tell. There's no difference. Therefore, gravity and acceleration are uh, identical. Gravity is a form of acceleration. So, okay, uh, the instructor describes that. I've, I knew that. I mean, I'd read that in uh, The Universe and Dr. Einstein and then Einstein's book, The Evolution of Physics. And <laughs> smart-ass kid. So... I'm thinking, I raise my hand, and this was supposed to be questions during lecture, but, you know, if something was unclear, so I raised my hand, he calls on me, and I said, um, when we're in space, when, when you drop that rock on the earth, the earth accelerator is pulling the rock down, but the rock also pulls the earth up, nowhere near as much, but technically, uh, the rock and the earth attract each other, but very little Earth, because the Earth is so much more massive than the rock. But when you drop the rock in space, the floor it's the the it's going to pull the floor of the elevator up a lot more than it'll pull the Earth up in the Earth experiment. And therefore, the physicist could tell the difference. And there's this long pause, <laughs> and the whole room turns around and looks at me. <laughs> 
And the lecturer pauses for a long time. Then he says, it's a very complicated issue having to do with the point of view of the observer. And then goes on with the lecture. <laughs> so I just blew a hole in Einstein's most fundamental point, And, you know, like nobody wants to talk about it. <laughs> so that's what I mean by, you know, couldn't we encourage a little more of that? Couldn't we have some more wise-ass kids? <laughs> you know, uh, you know, we should. The, the, for, you know, what we should ask our students is, what do you believe that nobody else believes? And you know, do you have any original thoughts? And if not, I would say maybe there's something wrong with what we're doing in in our school, because shouldn't we be teaching students to have the fundamental basic information and the critical thinking tools, I hate that word because it doesn't mean that, but, you know, the thinking tools to think for themselves and maybe come up with things that aren't what everybody else believes. So thinking about, you know, what should education be doing? And is college doing that? And if not, if we have our 18-year-old or 17-year-old, whatever they are these days, uh, with $100,000 and four years, maybe there's some other things they might be doing. And you think of how we, I, I'm going to try to handle a big word here, infantilize, is that the right word? Make infants of children today and of our students. So I was just watching uh, C-SPAN books, love C-SPAN books. The only thing I don't like about C-SPAN books is it's too much uh, politics, you know, it should be about the culture. There should be a C-SPAN culture uh, that's about the culture in general, not just politics and, uh, you know, uh, uh, world affairs. And I actually spoke to Brian Lamb when he was uh, lecturing at Strand Bookstore. And I said, you know, you, you said someone was working on a cultural C-SPAN. How's that going? He says, there's no money. And I said, give me the guy's name. <laughs> Talk to some rich friends. But um, uh, we now have it. It's called YouTube. And so if you think about it, <clears throat> what C-SPAN Books does, I'm digressing again, but that's my style. What C-SPAN Books does is goes to a bunch of bookstores. Uh, and, you know, locally they're in Washington, so they go to politics and prose. But they also go to... Barnes and Nobles, and and then also independent bookstores around the country. They have this big van, and uh, an author of a of a of a recent book about public policy or politics will be doing a reading and a question and answer. And C-SPAN Books broadcasts it. Great, you know, instead of getting a uh, two minute soundbite with the author, you get an hour. You find out in depth what or a half hour. Find out in depth what they're up to, what they're talking about, what they're thinking. Some, you know, you can be intelligent and informed. Well, think about it. Just just staying with colleges for a moment. How many lectures are going on? Well, let's start with mine. We have a weekly lecture series in the architecture department where I teach. Brilliant. The leading architects in the world interesting people. Some of them are the most famous, uh, 
but then there'll be young architects that are doing something interesting. And there'll be, what, a 10 a year uh, in the school. Now, that's just one department in an, in an art architecture and design school. How many other are going on at that week? At my one school, how many lectures are going on at Harvard this week in anthropology, archaeology, biology? Let's go through the alphabet. Computer science. In everyone's, not classes, but, you know, guest lecture, famous person coming in in the evening, uh, volunteering their time. Maybe they get a fee, but they, you know, they want the kids to, be, you know, help out the kids. And uh, how many are going on at Harvard? And then how many Harvards are there? What's going on this week at Stanford, Yale, Princeton, MIT, um, University of Illinois, Michigan, Wisconsin? Well, is anybody taping them? Hello? <laughs> We have to keep hearing about politics and all this English literature. You know, somebody wrote a book on Jane Austen or about Wadsworth or about um, Nietzsche or about Kant or about Plato or something, you know, anything to get beyond politics. Not that there's anything wrong with politics, but is there anything else? Well, guess what? We now have it. It's called YouTube. And... You know, the schools are not doing a good job of taping their lectures and posting them. But they're, they do get posted. You know, they're, they're here and there. You pick somebody prominent. Um, um, I'll mention Angela Duckworth in a couple of minutes. Just did a big uh, best-selling book, Rit. And there's a, um, a lecture series at Google. They get taped and put on YouTube. Uh, so she'll talk even if Harvard is not doing a good job of taping and posting their lectures. Uh, they should. I wish they did. Um, or if they do, I'm not finding out about it. But I think they're going to get to it. You know, my school is becoming aware that it, this is a responsibility of theirs. And um, But these these interesting cultural figures – will often talk somewhere where they're taping it and putting it on YouTube uh, or putting it on their own site. And so I, I had an interesting experience a while back where I, I because I'm involved in discussions of leadership, I re-read Jack Walsh's Jack Straight from the Gut. So Jack used to be the greatest CEO of the 20th century. Now people aren't sure. Maybe it's uh, Steve Jobs, but it's one of the two. And so I said, you know, what's Jack been up to since then? Because that book's quite a while back. And he's written other books, which I haven't read. Uh, But let's go, uh, let's just put Jack Walsh into uh, YouTube. And okay, so then I said, you know what? Uh, Jeff Immelt is the new CEO of of uh, of um, of uh, GE General Electric. So what's he up to? Uh, so I put Jeff Immelt into search in YouTube, and next thing you know, I'm discovering that there's a whole series of lectures, some by him, but General Electric. 
has something called Minds and Machines. So General Electric is rebuilding itself as a, they call themselves a digital industrial company. What does that mean? Well, they do a big annual conference with a dozen, with 3,000 people. I, I went to the last one a couple months ago because uh, I discovered this. It was in San Francisco, but the, the, they were originally in France. Can't get there, but how do you like that? Uh, they're all the lectures are on YouTube and they're on GE's site. So we start looking for that stuff. Um, so anyway, I, uh, <laughs> I'm watching C-SPAN books and Dave Barry is on. So unfortunately, Dave Barry doesn't write that wonderful column anymore, but he continues to write books. And he's, you know, one of the great humorists of our time. He's the, um, who is the great humorist who died in a plane crash in the 1930s or 40s? Um, anyway, um, so among other, he was on for more than an hour and a half, no, a couple, like two, two and a half hours. Uh, and in discussion and talking about everything. And he got into children and how we're overprotective of children today. And he says, you know, they have to have a helmet. They can't eat breakfast without a helmet. Uh, he says, when I was a kid, uh, we, you know, we'd run off in the, into the woods and go to the water hole and go swimming. And Ma would hurl out the window, don't drown. Uh, any parent that let their kid do that today would be put in jail. So what are we doing to our kids in doing that? I mean, Alexander the Great was commanding armies for his father when he was uh, 16. Uh, Admiral Nelson was commanding ships at uh, 17. And then in the arts, um, today, to be a composer, you need a Ph.D., what is that? And to be a to be an artist, you need a, a master's degree. You know, I mean, it used to be you had to go to arts. You know, first you, you did or didn't go to art school. Uh, and a lot of people went to some type of academy to study painting. Picasso did, but now you need a master's degree. You need a master's degree to be a painter. What? Uh, and you need a PhD to be a composer. Uh, so in my book, I was looking at, um, uh, look, I, I did some research just to look up some things. So for example, in order to teach musical competition today, one must obtain a PhD and that might take until your late thirties. Some would not have made it. So think of the people who we would not accept as composers or, and we certainly would not let them teach because they don't have a Ph.D. Uh, Chopin died at 39. Gershwin died at 38. Bizet died at 37. Mozart at 35. Schubert at 31. Um, they wouldn't have made it. They wouldn't have finished their Ph.D. They died too soon. They never would have been permitted. Today, they would not be permitted to teach. Um, Chopin Bizet, Gershwin, Mozart, Schubert uh, would not be qualified to teach. So these people like that are not, you know, permitted to teach. And then <laughs> think of the 27 Club. 
Kurt Cobain, Brian Jones, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, Jim Morrison, and Amy Winehouse are among the dozens of rock stars who died at age 27. It's called the 27 Club. They would certainly never be permitted to teach. Um, And then we can make the same observation about writing. Sylvia Plath and Emily Bronte died at 30. Stephen Crane and Shelley died at 29. And John Keats died at 25. Arthur Rambeau died at 37, but stopped writing at 21, leaving Europe to become a gun runner, (laughs) remarking true life is elsewhere. None of them had a Ph.D. In physics, George Gamow observes that Newton came up with his laws of gravity at 23. Einstein with his theory of relativity at 26. You're not permitted to do that today. No one has a Ph.D. at 26. You're not allowed to revolutionize physics until you get a Ph.D. And even then it's questionable. There's um, John Bell, who's responsible for Bell's theorem. And um, digression here, but Bell's theorem involves uh, taking the Einstein-Podolsky-Rosen paradox, which observes that particles can become entangled because they're actually, they're the same, they're two different particles, but they're the same uh, quantum phenomena. And once they become entangled, two subatomic particles, if they then become widely separated, observing one particle changes the other one across the universe instantly. So Einstein called it spooky action at a distance and, you know, this can't be. And he kept coming up for with <clears throat> explanations for why this can't be. And Heisenberg, uh, who was the designated defender of quantum theory against Einstein, who didn't like quantum theory, even though he was one of the founders of it, um, would have to keep coming up with answers. And this one sort of stuck with everybody, and then they just ignored it. In 1964, John Bell, Irish physicist, takes a leave of absence and comes to America and spends time at a couple of universities just to think about this problem. And he eventually comes up with a formulation for how you would test this. And then, um, and now I'm not going to remember the name of the French physicist who did the first uh, test of it. But this young uh, French physicist approaches John Bell and says, would such and such be an adequate test of the problem? And John Bell says, uh, do you have tenure? And <laughs> he says, no, I haven't even finished my Ph.D. yet. He says, OK, then, you know, you, it might be OK for you to do this, this experiment. In other words, you can't do anything revolutionary and uh, <laughs> it's dangerous. You, know? you, might, you might never, you might not get tenure. So in physics, George Gamow observes that Newton came up with his laws of gravity at 23, Einstein with his theory of relativity at 26, Niels Bohr with his theory of the atom at 27, and Gamow adds that he published his work on the transformations of the atomic nucleus at 24. Today's physicists would not have completed their PhDs by those ages and are not permitted to make such contributions. Today, physics 
is a group effort, fundamental breakthroughs, paradigm shifts that destroy all approaches and introduce new ones by individuals are no longer welcome. They're too threatening to establish physics. So, you know, it's... Uh, um, we need college to prevent people from doing things. And then we, you know, intellectually, and then we have this whole field of um, uh, can't-do-ness to prevent people from doing things in the world. And a lot of people have observed this, including myself, but uh, it's very well stated by Peter Thiel that, you know, there are two worlds now. There's the there's bits and atoms. So there's the computer world of computers, software, online things, Facebook, Twitter, um, computer theory. And then there's making things, you know, like highways, buildings, um, uh, cities. And in the world of doing things, in the advanced industrial countries, you can't do them anymore. Uh, and in Europe, they're really, it's really interesting how I read a, a, an English science magazine called New Scientist. And, you know, it's the most fun read these days. It's weekly and it's short. You can, you know, you can flip through it in an hour or so, you know, you know, reading a little bit and then maybe take the time later to go in depth. And um, they're very clear about in Europe, they decide what kind of innovations are going to be permitted. That's how they think. So in a future show, I'll took and eventually will interview um, the um, uh, Virginia Postrel, who wrote a book called The Future and Its Enemies. And she says there are um, dynamists and stasis. So dynamists are in favor of open-ended innovation. Now, the key thing about that is it's going to lead to things that we cannot predict. That's what open-ended innovation means. And stasis uh, believe in, uh, yes, we believe in innovation, but only if we plan it. You know, only if we permit it. Because some types of innovations might not be good for society. And that's what they believe in Europe. And so you notice, I mean, go down the list. Um, uh, Microsoft, Apple, Intel, um, and then, you know, come sooner, uh, Facebook, Twitter, uh, Google, they're all American companies. Not a single one is European. The only company, only innovation founded in Europe in recent times is Skype. Some kid in, where was he? I'm not going to say because I'll get it wrong. But, you know, some, some kid on his mother's kitchen table created Skype. But that's the, you know, and he got away with it because it was under the radar. Uh, but they don't permit innovation in Europe. Europe imports its those innovations which it's willing to accept from the United States. Well, listen, 
we've been off on all these great tangents. And um, we'll, we'll pursue this uh, in a future program. But I'm picking on college. And as we wrap up here, a quote from uh, Michael Ellsberg, author of The Education of Millionaires. And he writes, if a young person happens to retain enough creative spirit to start a business upon graduation, she does so in spite of her schooling, not because of it. Uh, perhaps there were, um, um, and so, you know, we look at these figures who um, didn't create, you know, didn't graduate school um, and brought about these innovations. So we don't permit our education is one that discourages creativity, innovation. So going back to our little conceit, we've got our uh, 17, 18-year-old, and they have asked us, what, I've got four years and $100,000. What should I do? And, um, of course, the point is, should they go to college? And the, um, uh, it's an open question. So we've created a world in which technological development has been stopped. You know, maybe we'll get driverless cars, uh, but that's, you know, as, as Peter Thiel likes to point out, we're watching uh, old, old uh, Fred Flintstone cartoons on our, on our tablet while driving, riding in a 19th century subway. And, uh, but we do see all these innovations in computers because it happened too quick before they could regulate it and before they could stop it. And they're working now on stopping it. So I think we can expect innovations in computers, software, technology to slow down now that they have swooped in. Um, you know, the government destroyed IBM. It's a shell of its former self. They, they stopped Microsoft for 10 years. Finally, they're innovating again. And they've now taken over Apple, of course. Uh, the, um, uh, the App Store is now regulated by the government. So uh, we're wrapping up. Thanks for tuning in. And we'll um, see you again next week, 10 a.m. on Progressive Radio Network.